This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. That, my friends, is Paul Check. Yeah, just put that anywhere you want, brother. Welcome. Thank to, you. What to, a pleasure. To the great unlearn. And sometimes I, I, I'll read a little intro, but I don't, I don't feel like that's necessary today. I'd love to just get right into a little bit about who is Paul Check. Everybody and everything. <laughs> I love it. No one and nothing. A mystery. A holistic health practitioner. <laughs> That's the illusion that I buy into most. That's right. A little bit of a podcaster too. Yeah. I love podcasting. It's beautiful. But, uh, you know, really I'm, uh, I think I'm a farmer and an alchemist and a therapist and a husband and a daddy and a teacher and a mystic and a hermit. Yeah. An athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bit of a medicine man. I'm a medicine man and a spirit guide. And in tarot, I'm the archetype of the emperor as my soul path, and the fool is my personality path. So, so, what's that mean exactly? Well, the emperor rules the four elements earth, water, fire, and air, and is the master of creating in the external world, like the world we're in. Um, the fool is the beginning and the end of the journey of life as a human being. So the fool symbolizes two things. The immature fool is the young soul who really is just here to figure what life's all about, you know, blow shit up, eat, drink, smoke, bang into things, figure it out. And then the wise fool is somebody who's lived through all the archetypes of the tarot or all the archetypes of the zodiac or each of the archetypes of the world's major religions has reached a depth of understanding to see life and people and religion and spirituality as what it truly is. And so they usually come back as guides for other people that are. Um, still 
waking up to what the world's really all about. So um, those are the two aspects of the fool, but the fool's numerological correlation is zero, which is all that is and all that isn't. Um, unconditional love is mathematically a zero because it has no conditions. Um, zero is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. omega. So the fool archetype really symbolizes the beginning and the end and the journey that's in between. And then each of the archetypes of the tarot is a different aspect of consciousness or an expression of different types of experiences that we're going to engage typically on a daily basis because they're all um, archetypal expressions of consciousness. So archetypes are the root language of consciousness. So archetypes really are what embodies consciousness so that it can make meaning. So the archetype of the athlete, the archetype of the tree, archetype basically means empty form. So um, an archetype, for example, of the mother represents all mothering of any type. Even if you were a male who was doing the archetype, the work of a mother, you'd be in the mother archetype. So you have the archetype of the mother, the archetype of the father, and the archetype of the child. That's the basis of a family. And so then you have archetypes like movement, archetype of space, the archetype of time. Uh, the archetype of the tree would represent any kind of tree, be it in nature or a hat tree or a tree diagram. Mm. So the old saying is that a, a picture is worth a thousand words and an archetype is worth millions of pictures. Mm -hmm. So because the mind operates in images before it even has languages and it always creates images even for language, archetypes are really the basis of imagery. Uh, Carl Jung says the archetype of which all archetypes emerge from is the Imago Dei, which means image of deity. And so if you look at what affects people uh, most with regard to their values and the way they perceive the world, it's some kind of religious programming. Mm -hmm. Jung says it's impossible to distinguish whether or not your beliefs about God create your Imago Dei, or if your Imago Dei creates you. How's that for an intro? <laughs> <laughs> Archetypal. <laughs> well, there's a lot that came to mind for me. One, one of the, I, didn't, I don't think I shared this with you, but um, we were talking about how the, you know, the name of the podcast is The Great Unlearned, but the very first name was Working In. Yeah, wow, cool. Yeah, well, I know that name. <laughs> and uh, while I didn't receive it directly from you, I received it from a lot of your students, Kyle, uh -huh. Alex, and they introduced me to the practices of working in. Right on. So that felt really good with what I was doing. But then as you remarked, the great and learn was more encompassing. Mm -hmm. So a little, little shout out to you. And I was telling you earlier that James Fitzgerald, who's been a coach mentor, brother of mine for a number of years, introduced me to your work with how to eat, move and be healthy. Mm-hmm. So this has been 12 years in the making, I suppose. Cool. And great to finally have you here, brother. Thank you. Thanks. It's nice to be here. So you're here in Austin. Uh, we're going to be attending the same wedding. You're actually officiating it. Yeah, I'm the minister. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is Alex and Sarah are doing what they call shadow vows. Can mm -hmm. you, that's very probably um, foreign to many of my listeners. 
Well, I'm the one that encouraged them to do it um, because I've done a lot of coaching with both of them uh, through the years. And, um, you know, the, the thing is marriage is a very interesting um, <laughs> convention, uh, relationship, uh, opportunity. And there's a lot of uh, challenges because the Christian belief, as is other religions, is once you get married, till death do you, do, till, till death do you part, you never, you know, you, that's it. And so um, the conundrum of all that is, is that the average marriage only lasts 2.5 years in the world today, and the average person is married three times in their lifetime. So what that tells you that the, is that the whole convention of till death do you part really only means till death of the relationship. (laughs) And then sometimes it lives on after that too, unfortunately. Yes. Well, it lives oftentimes in, in dark territory. And so the shadow is a concept. I think Jung probably popularized it most, but the shadow is, is, is really the uh, expression of the parts of ourselves that we repress, that we deny, um, or that are, or anything that's socially unacceptable. Um, Mm. There's a great book uh, called The Shadow by Robert A. Johnson, a famous union analyst. And of all the books I've read on The Shadow, his is probably the most clear. But he describes that the shadow begins whenever there's an enculturation process. So, you know, as kids, we love to run around naked, but inevitably somebody starts telling us, you can't be naked. That's right. And you can't touch your penis or your vagina or whatever, you know, all the things that we naturally instinctually do just without any programming in the way, turn out to be taboos in most cultures. So all of a sudden you're telling children that they can't touch themselves and, you know, then religious people are saying you can't listen to that kind of music and you can't eat that kind of food and you can't say certain things to certain people and you have to have your hair a certain way, your clothes a certain way. And every time someone stacks a layer of those types of... uh, uh, judgments on you, then you have to repress that part of yourself that authentically wanted out. For example, my little boy Mana loves to dress up in girls' clothes. He just thinks it's cool. He likes to wear dresses and he likes girls' toys. He loves boys' toys too, but he just doesn't want to be limited in his expression. And so I say, fire away, put on whatever you want, you know, and the girls think it's great. They dress him up and doll him up and he gets to be a girl. Now, a lot of men would immediately be telling their four-year-old, don't be a pussy and don't be foolish or any other combination of terms to make the child feel bad about himself for doing that. Mm -hmm. So that would immediately create a field of repression. Hmm. So, you know, uh, if my little boy wants to play with his penis, we just say, go ahead. It's yours. I have fun, you know? That's what it's for. Uh, <laughs> yes. Better yes. learn how to use it now. Yeah. Um, because I don't want him to develop more shadow than is healthy because that shadow, as I will describe, ex- explain, becomes a real, <laughs> a real problem. So when we're, you know, put in situations like being in church and told that God loves you and God is love, but God will burn you in hell for doing this or doing that or any of the things you're being told not to do, which turn out to be against your natural instincts. 
we end up really being in a situation where things are not logical for us. And for a child, that's very, very confusing because they can't make meaning out of it. How do you make meaning out of the highest form of love is God, but God will burn you in hell and make your life really freaking miserable for doing things that seem completely natural to you, like singing and dancing and listening to music you like and creating art that you love, but apparently is against the rules of the church or whatever. And the list of, of thou shalt nots is extremely long. So what we find is as early as being a young child, there's certain things we can do in our bedroom when no one's looking or certain ways we can act out in the forest when no one's around. But then we have to have a very careful, sharp memory as to who am I when grandma's here? Who am I when mom's around? What do I get away with with dad? And what do I have to keep secret from mom? And what, what, who do I have to be at school? Who do I have to be to get good grades? Um, you know, so you start seeing that this poor little being is mentally taxed with all this filtration of persona. And each persona is like a mask that acts as a, an illusion that projects something to the person we're wearing the mask for to try to fit in. But it also is blocking the truth of who we really are. And so the more we block the truth of who we really are, the more of a shadow we develop because those truths are often qualities of the soul or qualities of our instinctual drives, such as the need for sexual connection or the need for food or the need for movement or the need for breath. Uh, Jung would describe love, love as an instinct, the need for connection, love, mm -hmm. the need for creativity. And so when we block our instincts and our natural drives, that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means they're having a really hard time finding a way out because it turns out that most of the things that are unacceptable in many culturals and cult cultures and religious families are very directly opposed to our natural instincts yes. to create and to express ourselves. So the more you segregate aspects of your true self, the more those aspects of yourself get projected. So if you are naturally oriented to the same sex, but you're in a heterosexual culture or in a religious family where that is very frowned upon, then you have to somehow figure out how to deny that part of yourself because the cost of getting found out could be extreme. Mm. And so what happens is that aspect of the shadow is projected out as resent toward anybody else that's living their truth. So when you see someone else having a same-sex relationship and really in love, it makes you very angry. But the ego doesn't realize that the anger is not at the person or the people you're seeing. It's at itself because it's not brave enough to be who it really is for fear of losing connection to mom, dad, family, friends, culture. Because if you're not developed enough, you're not at an adult level of maturation, then you need these 
other relationships to make it in the world because the world's a very big place for someone that's not an adult yet. So what happens is you project your own anger onto mm. other people and whatever that situation may be and whatever the aspect of yourself that's being denied, be it sex, art, creativity, uh, clothing, which job you've chosen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does this go along the lines of the, if you spot it, you got it idea? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it also goes along the lines of it's important to remember whenever you're pointing a finger at someone else, there's three pointing back at you. Yeah. So the shadow projects its pain outward because to deal with it authentically, you run the risk of healing enough <laughs> yeah. to then start dancing naked in the rain in front of your house and getting put in jail by your neighbors reporting you. <laughs> so it, it takes quite a lot of uh, spiritual courage to truly authentically be yourself because it comes at risk of uh, separation from family, friends, criticism, denial, judgment. You know, in my own life, I've been constantly labeled everything from a cult leader to a hippie to a fool to, you know, just the, the judgments have just rolled in throughout my whole career. Um, fortunately, I've, <laughs> I trust my own life experience and, and knowledge, and uh, I have a strong sense of um, connection to my own soul, so I don't really need other people's approval, and I don't share things publicly until I've worked with them a fair bit to the degree that I don't feel like I'm uh, misleading anybody by sharing mm -hmm. things. Wouldn't you say, Paul, too, that uh, would you assert that when, when I'm triggered by something, rather than judge myself for being triggered and I should quote unquote be better than that, that's information for me that this is something that's unsettled in me, unresolved, and then to work with what it is about someone on social media or someone who says something or the way they're living, mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for me to look at that, get away from the judgment of them and then of myself for not handling it quote unquote better. We're all like, it, this is a tough game, this human existence. So how do you work with that? Well, first of all, I call that a catalyst. Okay. Mm -hmm. So any judgment that separates you from another person, place or thing is an illusion that you're creating because the truth of the universe and the truth of God is unity. So in Arnold Patton's Universal Principles, he says something quite beautiful. He says, anytime you create an illusion that is not in harmony with the laws of the universe, you must provide the energy to maintain the illusion yourself. And when you look at how many illusions people are projecting onto other people, places, and things, Imagine each one of them is like opening another window on your computer. It's no question. There's no, of course, we're all exhausted by yes. this output of energy. Yes. So. Unclean energy. Yeah. And, and because you're generating illusions that separate you, which leads to isolation, which leads to anxiety, then eventually leads to depression because you feel totally disconnected. And then you're often caught in the victim archetype of blaming everybody else because your life is so shitty. Everyone else has money. Everyone else has fun. Poor me. And, you know, it's the spin down. So I teach my students that any such experience is a catalyst and all challenges are opportunities waiting to be um, experienced. Mm. And so. 
what I teach my students to do is anything like that that separates you or causes pain is, is what I call the appearance or the presence of the pain teacher. Mm. So I would say, thank you, dear soul or dear pain teacher for showing me where I have a judgment against such and such a person or whatever. And then I state my dream in regard to that. So if the judge, if my mother says to me, you know, your art's really, you need, you really need to go to training because your faces are out. My mother's a sculptor. So when she looks at my art, she's always very critical of it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Mom, come on, mom. And I, and I, you know, I say, mom, the exact reason that I don't take training in art is because I don't want to disrupt my authentic expression of what is coming through me. And I don't want to kill the little boy that needs to have a place to express himself because the world requires far too much adult energy out of me. So I need time to do things without rules and regulations and judgments. So when my mother keeps going at me on stuff like this or, you know, going crazy on me because I use plant medicines and she thinks that's the work of the devil and all sorts of crap, I can let it really wind me up or I can say, ah, thank you, dear pain teacher, for showing me where I have a a mind virus. Mm. And then I can state my dream. My dream is to love my mother unconditionally and know that she's seeing the world as her unique divine self. And that's what makes her special is that unique perspective on life and reality. And so then I can say, which of those beliefs, my mom's a royal pain in the ass or my mom's unique expression of the divine actually creates more freedom and gets me to my dream of having connection with my mother. Mm. Well, it turns out to be my mother's a divine being and, and I can, I don't have to let her opinion bother me. I can actually see it as cute and funny and say, well, mom, you know, I'm sure glad you went to school and did all this training because your sculpture is beautiful. But I hope that you can also enjoy seeing the beauty of your little boy, even though he's right on the edge of 60. (laughs) And if she didn't do that, if she didn't show up that way, you wouldn't have that moment necessarily to have that moment of appreciation and to kind of recast the dream. What is my dream? And then go into that, right? So it's really that opportunity, Dr. Payne or the pain teacher. Yeah. And it's happening all the time. And usually we're generating our own adversaries faster than mom and dad can do it anyhow. (laughs) You know, go, why, why the fuck did I do that? <laughs> yeah. I oh shit, I forgot my wallet. I'm such a dumb fuck. Yes. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, the average person, according to research, thinks 68,000 thoughts a day, of which 90% were found to be negative in orientation. So to, to say that there's catalysts hanging around <laughs> is an understatement, right? Fertile ground. And, you know, and, and nothing quickens consciousness like pain, physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual pain. There are always the invitations to say, is, is what I'm doing really producing the dream goal or objective that I want? Or am I just recapitulating my mother, my father, and my teachers and the people that brainwash me into seeing the world in a way that isn't working very well for them typically? Right. And, and, and we spoke about this before we got on. I was just sharing a little, you know, I know a fair amount about Paul just through his podcast and through my relationship with, with Kyle and Aubrey, but we're sharing with Paul that you know, about three years ago, I was at the Las Vegas shooting. Some of you already know that. That right there was the moment that everything fell away. The shit wasn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was the opportunity 
to reimagine how I was going through life. And now it was happening on a subconscious level. I was just going after that, trying to figure it out. And it wasn't until about 18 months into that journey that I realized like, oh, I'm trying to understand why I'm here. And that's why I'm so curious about all these different areas, whether it be plant medicine, breath work, how I'm eating, whatever my relationship. Um, and so that for me was this huge catalyst where everything just fell away. And it allowed me, as you can imagine, like going through that experience is not just the being in Vegas, but when you start to lose all those things, it can be really terrifying because you're like, well, what the, f- who, what, what am I without all these different the armoring or the mask or however you want to, you know, kind of categorize it. But when you start to strip those away and you can settle into what that is, it's very liberating. And then Mm -hmm. you can start to, as you said, what is that dream? How do I want to be? How do I want to show up? What's my soul's journey? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. What's my authentic expression of myself? And it takes a lot of courage to do that because hardly anybody in our culture is expressing their authentic self because it comes at great cost. You know, Osho said, freedom is the most dangerous thing you'll ever experience in your life. And it's damn true. I mean, all you got to do is study the history of the great mystics who were telling us the truth about God and life. Most of them got crucified and or just tortured to death. And there's a long, long list of them. Um, it's a miracle to me that Rumi didn't just get tortured for the things he shared in his poetry. Um, there's a great book I have in my, I've got a, a comprehensive collection of Rumi's poetry, probably got 60 or 70,000 of Rumi's poems, but um, there's a book called the forbidden Rumi that the translators had a very hard time getting the Persian government to release because a lot of what's in there goes very against what's in the Quran. And against the Islamic faith and, and uh, says things like this, no man can get to God until he becomes a heretic. And what is Rumi saying? He's saying, as long as you're reading books and what other people wrote about God and memorizing that, you're not having an experience of God. You're having an experience of a bunch of symbols written on a piece of paper and imagining that it's God but it's so far from the truth of God, it's unbelievable. And it's really a system to brainwash you into a way of uh, living and relating that serves a very few and often leads to lots of problems like world wars. And so Rumi is saying, to get to God, you must have a heretic, which means you need to be brave enough to develop your own intimate relationship with God and have your own experiences and trust your inner guidance system to take you to the person's places, things, time at the right times and in the right places to have these experiences. But if your dream is to truly know the truth of yourself and God, you have to make that your guiding intention. And so why that's so important is because most people don't really know what the word intention means. If God is unconditional love, that means God is pure potential or Said another way, God would be that which is the zero-point field in quantum physics, the source of all that is or can be. And as unconditional love or pure potential, it's the uncarved block that Michelangelo used to speak about. He would say, you know, my job wasn't to put David into the stone, it was to get everything out of the way so David could be expressed through Mm -hmm. the stone. And so 
when, when the uncarved block is completely naked and open to anything we want to do with it, then we need to have an intention. Once you have an intention, you put the two aspects of God, that which is empty of anything, yet full of everything. The empty is the yin, the dark, the feminine, the negative. And the yang is the masculine, the expression, or in David Bohm's term, yin is implicate, the infolded or the seed, the idea, like a soul's essence, is infolded until it's born. And the explicate is the unfolded yang expressive potential. So when the baby is born, it's into the explicate. So when you have an intention, you actually take potential and put it into tension. And now there is a line of flow of energy and information that allows you to use pure potential for manifestation. So intention and awareness coupled together with action produce manifestation. But if one's intention is not clear, they usually have a very hard time manifesting because, for example, they might say, well, I think I want to be wealthy, but I don't know how wealthy I want to be, and I'm not sure what I want to do, and maybe I'll do this. And, and they're scattering their intention all over the place, so the universe is simultaneously investing 5% into that dream, 5% into that dream. So the analogy I give my students is if you, if you put four 20-pound turkeys in an oven and come back four hours later, you'll have four 25% cooked turkeys. Mm. But if you put one in there and your intention is to have dinner ready in four hours, that intention will be manifest. So when we use intention properly, we have to clearly embrace and be 100% invested in with our body, mind, heart, and soul. And then the flow, you could say the amperage of Mm. current is much, much higher. And therefore, we're able to manifest because we're putting our potential into tension. Another way of thinking of it is the tow rope of a car. You can't tow the car until there's tension in the line. You can't walk a tightrope until it's got enough tension on it. So if you look at the Tai Chi symbol, which symbolizes the two qualities of unconditional love, the empty yin and the full yang, the line that looks like an S between the two fish chasing each other is the line of tension that is in tension, but it runs from the beginning, from the top to the bottom of the circle, which just means everything that looks like something separate, yin and yang, is actually an expression of the divine one. (laughs) So once we realize that there is nothing but God experiencing and expressing God, then we can access our soul's capacity to manifest and put spirit into tension with our intention, which I call the dream, the goal, or the objective. And as long as we're not carrying too much shadow, then we can manifest very efficiently. But, you know, the, a good example of the shadow that Robert A. Johnson gives, he's, he says, is uh, a man gets up in the morning, he uh, sits down to eat breakfast, he's a little late for work, and his wife hasn't got breakfast done yet. So he gets pissed off, but he knows if he shares his true feelings with her, she probably will get pissed off at him and not feed him. So he gets up and walks over and kicks the dog. Mm. 
And so the dog has to bear the brunt because he was projecting his pain towards his wife, which ultimately his judgment against himself because things aren't going the way he wants mm-hmm. them to do. So the dog gets kicked. The wife feels his coldness, probably doesn't feel very inspired to cook for him, but he's actually projecting that the reason he's late is somebody else's fault, including the dog. (laughs) So that's what projection is. So if we don't uh, do the work to heal our shadow, then we actually live in a world full of illusions that we're projecting onto the screen and we actually never get to know people for who they really are. We never experience love for what it really is. Um, We don't manifest to our potential. um, And we tend to kick everybody else's dog. In other words, we don't realize that the people that we're upset at are the people that are brave enough to live the way we wish we were brave enough to live. And so instead of celebrating their authenticity, we criticize and judge the very people that inspire us the most without realizing what's really going on. So that, that's sort of the nature of the shadow and, and why being aware of the shadow is so critical because if you don't do the work to heal it, then you keep attracting yourself to yourself mm-hmm. indefinitely. So you will like attracts like and opposites attract. So you attract people just like you, but you also attract people with opposite viewpoints and values to you as well. A male attracts a female typically. Uh, north pole of a magnet attracts a south pole. So we may attract people that are like us, but we will also attract people that are violently opposite to mm-hmm. us. And that creates the, um, the fire that the alchemy uh, takes place in, the alchemy of human transformation. Well, you know, it, the, well, one of the reasons, I just, the, the, the shadow vow meant so much to Peyton and I is because we had another marriage ceremony two years ago mm. and it was down in um, Merida, Mexico. So down in the Yucatan and it was a Mayan ceremony. As you can imagine, there was a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of the ceremony was around communing with the shadow and looking into mm-hmm. the black obsidian and owning it and mm-hmm. forgiving ourselves and one another for anything that had happened and will happen, but that we are here to commune with the shadow and not try to outrun it, which I think is what you're talking about. A lot of us see it and are afraid of it. And like, that's not me. And the more you say it's not me, the more it becomes you. Well, the less you, the less awareness you give it, the more power it exerts over you. So it's psychic energy, it's real, and we embody that energy. So our anger towards gay people, our anger towards Donald Trump, our anger towards COVID, whatever it might be, um, we actually embody the energy of the shadow. And the more polarized it is, i.e. the more you resent or hate or dislike something, the more energy there is. So if you don't actually engage it, because it's real, it starts trying to control you. It actually becomes a form of artificial intelligence and it is perceived by the um, uninitiated as their authentic view of reality, not realizing it's really an illusion. And so by engaging the shadow and say, ah, there's my resent for my mother. Ah, there's my frustration at people that uh, disagree with my uh, 
concepts of diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's my um, disgust towards Donald Trump and and segregating people and acting like a Middle Ages king who doesn't realize he's taking us into the Dark Ages. So when I see something like that, I have to say, okay, where is that kind of domineering masculine energy within myself? And where might I also be doing that without being aware of it? Mm-hmm. And that can involve asking my, I have two wives, so I can say to the girls, am I, am I trumping you mm-hmm. and ignoring you and forcing my opinions on you, even when it's uncomfortable for you? And you are doing it because it's easier to do than to put up with me. So there's a way to investigate the shadow. But what happens is the more awareness you bring to the shadow, the more light you bring to it. Mm -hmm. And so as you engage it, you can say, ah, so there's a technique I teach called name it, blame it, and tame it. Mm. I can recognize through my investigation when Donald Trump is living in me. And I can say, ah, oh, there's Donald Trump about to state his forceful opinion. <laughs> and hand up. So then it. I can blame it and say, you know, whenever Donald Trump's around, I feel overly masculine and I run the risk of disrespecting other people's opinions and other people's feelings. And I also run the risk of creating disharmony when my dream is really harmony in all my relationships. Then I tame it. Ah, now that I see Donald's hanging around, I don't have to let that part of me run the show because the truth of myself lives in my heart and the shadow of Donald Trump isn't really an expression of my heart. It's an expression of my fear Mm -hmm. or my resent towards others that may see the world differently than me. So that's the act of taming it. And so the more attention you put into the aspects of your shadow, the more illuminated they become. So what was in the unconscious acting itself out, Donald Trump going wild and you having no idea how Trump-like you are, is all of a sudden now within the scope of your conscious radar, your awareness. And each time you engage it, that shadow element has less and less charge on it because you're adding consciousness to it and therefore it can't control you from the unconscious. And you, you can't, you cannot access something in your unconscious until you intentionally look for it Mm. because by definition it's unconscious. So only when you bring it up from the unconscious into the conscious, can it now be objectified and then your awareness of it becomes the subject and it becomes the object. So before enough space for you to actually see what's going on and you can you can circumscribe it. You can say, there's the Donald Trump of me and it's different than the, my mother or yeah. it's very much like my mother. Or <laughs> As it turns out. There's the Donald Trump of me and it's very different than the shaman in me. Mm. And the shaman's much more of a healthy personality to express. So even if I say, whenever Donald Trump's around, it's a reminder to access the shaman of me. Yeah, and for, for me, when that stuff comes up, uh, and I know you've, you've spoken about self-love ad nauseum, but I'd love for you to, to, to share with us a little bit about what, again, for me, when I'm having judgments about someone or not acting in a way that I'm proud of, mm-hmm. it's because I'm not feeling okay with me. And so there's that projection. And so I know that I need to figure out what are the practices that I need to sit with that can get me back into feeling 
okay or being in love with who I am at, at that soul level. And Paul's going to go peace or we're going to pause. Unless you want to come with me. <laughs> so we're back and we enjoyed some, well, I'm going to have Paul explain what we just enjoyed. We did some uh, uh, rendezvous, which is an, uh, a Native American style tobacco with a little Northern shag, which is a nice clean tobacco with some, um, I think I put holy man herb mix in there with a few drops of water uh, vaporized at 428 degrees. And so there's no fire, of course. It's just the water vapor out of the plant. So you get a fraction of the nicotine, but you get a nice experience of the spirits of the plants and the tobaccos. And I love tobacco because it's really supportive of, of uh, cognition. Uh, it does very much the same as caffeine. It helps linearize thinking. So uh, the herbs sort of give me the support of whatever the energy of the herb is. So mint would be cooling or marijuana would be a f- herb that flowers your consciousness and takes you into many, many dimensions at once. So if you were trying to smoke marijuana while you were doing a podcast, you'd find that it was just going all over the place. But tobacco, if you mix tobacco with it, then you get the best of both worlds. You can get all the creativity of the many worlds, but you can bring it down into linear thought. Mm. So this is sort of the alchemy of herbs and flower. I use flower essences, essential oils, herbs, mineral essences, or gem essences, uh, because I can then choose the plants, the gems, the flower essences, or the essential oils to create exactly the internal state that will support whether it's meditation or creative writing or technical writing or energizing me to lift weights or lift stones or whatever it is, you know, it's sort of like a painter works with paints. Yeah. I was going to say, so when, when, when do you generally sit down with the the volcano and, and have this experience? I start my day with my prayers. I use smoke like the, the, vapor as a, as a medicine man uses a peace pipe. Mm-hmm. So I use that to, as a means of channeling prana. And uh, then I just use it whenever I feel like I need a break to get away from the computer or just clear my head. Or if I'm doing like meditation, cause I'm putting an outline for a new course or an article together. I just find it very soothing to the mental body and it helps me focus. And um, so I, I sort of use it in many, many ways. Just when I, when I w- turned 50, I went through a very intense midlife crisis. It took me three years to heal from. One of my promises to myself is I wasn't going to work anymore, uh, particularly coaching and teaching, unless I could make it fun for myself because I had fallen into the trap of, of trying to save the world. And one of the burdens of knowledge is that you can see what's going on and it drives you crazy when you see how many people are being misled by so-called experts that really aren't very expert. We're going to get into that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I pretty much exhausted myself traveling the world for 25 years, teaching all over and constantly coaching clients and building new programs and living in airplanes and hotel rooms and uh, you know, with all the Tai Chi and skills I have, I reached the point where I told my wife, if I go one step further, I'm actually living against the principles I teach. And that's the day I begin to ruin my own organization. So I said, 
even if the Institute goes broke, I have to take however much time it takes to heal and just trust the universe to guide me because I can't, I refuse to, um, I refuse to be somebody different on stage than who I really am. So it did cause a huge financial problem and it came uh, right around the time we went, right at the time we went through the 2008 stock market crash. Mm. So I ended up getting about 750,000 in debt, having to fire half of my instructors that weren't actually helping the Institute, but were a problem. And then doubling my teaching demand yeah. and traveling constantly. So I really pushed myself into exhaustion, rescued the Institute and then started taking um, Fridays off and cutting my client work back to just enough to pay the bills so that I could do a lot more inner healing work. And so being a medicine men and spirit guide that included uh, plant, plant medicine ceremonies probably once a week and fasting and really soul searching to find out how am I going to navigate the rest of my life. And, um, I was very close to joining a Zen monastery and just leaving it all behind and saying, you can do whatever you want with this thing, Penny. I'm like, I'm done with it. I've done what I can do for the world. But Penny, Penny's strength and, and inspiration and motivation kept me in the game and my spiritual practices. And then that's when I began spending time with Angie, who's a very highly qualified shaman. And, and she helped me heal a lot. And then one thing led to the other. And next thing you know, we're together as a family. And Penny was in favor of that. So, and then Angie had our two kids, but, uh, I just found that, um, rattling, drumming, singing, chanting, dancing, painting, um, tai chi, various forms of meditation, exercise, working with stones. Those were all the things that I needed to do to heal. But mm. then I realized those are the things I need to do to heal every day. So I built my life around creating sacred time yeah. and only what time is left in the day do I engage work. And I only do as much work as I can do in that period because if I don't have a clear definition of what my sacred time is, then I find that it's so easy to fall into the trap of constantly working to make money Out, and output and grow a business. And next thing you know, you, your kids don't have time with you. Your wives are upset. You're frustrated because you're tired and you're getting more and more tired, but you have more and more demands on you. And so I found that if I create time to just sit and have a smoke and do a little doodle or get out of my chair and go paint for a few minutes or walk. Uh, Angie built a beautiful labyrinth at our new property, walk the labyrinth or just go be with my rocks or walk to the pond and see the bullfrogs and the birds and re-energize myself. Then I just, uh, I feel myself falling into the, trap of the younger ego that yeah. wants to conquer the world. And I just have no desire to live in that well, state. <laughs> and I hope it's not lost on everybody listening that here's a guy that I, you know, through my eyes, 
coined the term working in and here you got to, you got to a point where you weren't doing any of that and it was all output. Well, I was doing it all the time. That was my point. But it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And so we can all fall in no matter how great your intentions are and what's motivating you, right? When you're not like truly inspired, then it shifts and there's not that balance. And now that's the core of what you're doing is like, I need to, self-care mm-hmm. and then the output comes through inspiration i teach all my students i before we always and we before all always the problem was is with the demands on my time my time for tai chi and and the i-ness things that i needed to support myself wasn't enough relative to the amount of hours and the magnitude of the tasks and the responsibilities that i had so i either had to do six hours of Tai Chi painting and rock stacking and things like that a day and two hours of work a day, or I wasn't going to make it. But with me growing the Institute and having an international lecture schedule and, you know, just constant interviews. And I was writing articles at sometimes for 12, 10, 12 periodicals around the world. So every month I had to put out about 10 or 12 new articles, plus writing for the Institute, plus building courses, uh, plus maintaining my YouTube channel, which now has approaching 600 videos on it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just like, I just got to the point where I couldn't give more of myself because I didn't even have enough for me to enjoy. And the hours that I could allot to it with the life I'd built weren't adequate enough. And so I had to learn to say no to a lot of opportunities, even though they might be very good for the business or financially. Mm -hmm. And I had to uh, just really let go of my ego and totally orient myself toward my soul's guidance and towards self-love, which is what we yeah. were talking about before we had our mm-hmm. little break here. Yeah. So. yeah. so, you know, self-love is really the basis of your experience of life because if you don't love yourself, the first thing that happens is you become codependent upon other people to uh, give you the opportunity to feel love. So you actually can become... Uh, quite entangled in relationships that aren't healthy because you're constantly needing something from someone else to feel connected or feel love or feel loved. Um, And that usually brings a lot of crisis into relationships because inevitably you start becoming um, a draining force on the other person because they become responsible for your happiness. They're carrying all of that. You're carrying the responsibility that belongs to you. Yeah. So everything that I'm just talking about is really a form of self-love. We, it's up to each of us to get clear. You know, the best way to describe it is my four-doctor model. There's four doctors in my model. Doctor happiness, which is the domain of mind and happiness and values. Doctor movement, and each of the doctors is, is functional at the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual level. Doctor movement means what do I need to do to keep my physical body healthy? What am I putting action to emotionally and mentally? And how does that orient itself toward my spiritual ideals or ideology or um, what I believe I'm really here for and what the world is for and what life is for? Mm. And how do I connect to others in meaningful ways? Dr. Diet is what do I need to feed myself 
to keep my physical body healthy. And then remembering the emotional body feeds on emotions, not food. I have to be clear about what emotional sustenance I need and how can I create that for myself. And when I know what feeds me, then I know what kind of people I am likely to be in harmony with so I can be more conscious of who I select to spend time with. So important. And then um, what do I need to feed my mind? Because the mind feeds on thoughts. So what is it that I can use my mind for to create safety and security within myself and my personal relationships? And then the all level is what am I using my mind to do to create um, something I can add to the world and know that I can do my best to leave it a better place than how I found it. Then Dr. Quiet, which is the home of rest and introspection, what do I need, how much rest do I need to keep my physical body healthy? And how much introspection do I need to uh, not fall into the trap of too much shadow or, or too much unconscious behavior or too much ego? Um, and then how do I rest myself emotionally, such as are there relationships that may be important, but can be quite taxing. Like being around my mother is important, but can be very taxing because it's just a long string of judgments. And so I have to take responsibility for how much and when I expose myself to people that are emotionally stressful, but important to work through these things with, but also I have to be responsible for knowing who is emotionally nurturing. And then I also have to know when to rest from the constant pursuit of higher ideals and ideas, because that can be a very powerful addiction. And so I have to make decisions about what am I going to study? How much am I going to study? Um, how much weight am I putting on this study? And uh, what am I studying for? And is it dream affirmative or is it just to try to uh, cover up some fear I have about not knowing things, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm. So those four doctors, happiness, quiet diet, and movement are the absolute essentials of any living philosophy because you cannot be a healthy person with three doctors. You can't, for example, know what is happy making for you and have good values on movement, diet, and happiness, but ignore rest or you'll burn out. You can have a good amount of rest, a happy mindset, and adequate movement, but be confused about food and make yourself sick and create a dysfunction emotionally and mentally through being unconscious about what you're feeding your body. So for a person to really have sustainable well-being, there has to be a degree of awareness and discernment within those four categories, or you will spend a lot of money on doctors and therapists until the pain reaches the point that you wake up to the fact that you need to find someone to teach you what's missing in your life. Mm. So Dr. Happiness is really the home of getting clear on what is happy making for you specifically. And I've mentioned several things that are happy making for me. Mm -hmm. And then Dr. Happy is in charge of having values because your yes has no value until you learn to say no. Mm -hmm. If you just say yes to everyone, you're, you're quickly someone's doormat. 
Yes. You'll be doing everything from the dishes to closing up the store late to working overtime. And you'll start resenting everyone, not realizing it's you that's choosing to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, we have to have values to guide our use of consciousness and our life force energy, or we just end up in a quagmire and aren't really clear about how we got there. So to love yourself really means I have to take responsibility for deciding what makes me happy each day and building time into my schedule to do that. Which is what you've done. Yeah. I have to be clear on what my values are because values are the thing that triggers our emotions most. When we're living in alignment with our values and our relationships are in alignment with our values, there's usually minimal disharmony. But when we're living against our values, whether we're conscious of it or not, or we're relating to people that have opposing values, it can become very, very stressful and burn you out. Uh, Especially if you're trying to convince other people why they're wrong, which is never a good idea. So once you have a clear sense of what's happy making and what your values are and your values around movement, diet, and rest, then you actually have the most essential formula there is for knowing how to love yourself. And to the degree that you live as that person, you know how much time you need alone for whatever it is, exercise, spiritual practices, prayer, uh, whatever you need, painting, reading. Um, and you are responsible for figuring out how you're going to build that into your day. For example, lots of people, I don't have time to that. You're lucky. I won't know. If you saw how much work I do every day, you'd realize I don't have, I, I, I have less time than you. The difference is, is that I prioritize it. So I get up at 4.30 in the morning and get to my office usually by 5. And I start with my meditations and my prayers. And that usually takes me about an hour and 20 minutes. Then I do my uh, reading for the research for my projects, which is things that I enjoy reading about because they're important to me. And so generally I spend the first two and a half hours to three hours of the day um, doing the things that allow me to be fully present with myself and express love to the the things that I believe are essential to love, be it God, Mother Nature, um, various ways of relating, for example, sure. power animals, spirit guides, using tarot as a practice, um, meditation, being in nature. I typically go grab my daughter and my son and take them on a meditation walk around our property before I do my tarot. So I incorporated what used to be a solo mm. practice of Tai Chi as now becoming uh, an awareness practice. And so I had to find ways to incorporate my children into my meditative practice, my self time, so that I could actually take my skill level to the next level. It's easy to meditate and do Tai Chi all alone. Sure. But the next level of growth and development is to make it a, a a practice that you do throughout the day so that you can bring it into the world at the we or the all level and exemplify it as a um, 
higher level of practice. So I found that though it can be a little frustrating because you have to listen to kids and sure. you're being pulled off into all sorts of things, that once I really accepted that as the greatest gift I could give them is just to be present with them and not try to control the outcome. And so if Zoe wants to pet mm. the trees and kiss the leaves on every second plant for a 20 minute walk, which turns it into a 40 minute walk <laughs> and Mana wants to go try to climb rocks where he's about to kill himself. And I have to chase him down with Zoe strapped to my chest, which makes it dangerous for both of us. Instead of letting it wind me up, I just say, okay, this is the catalyst that I get to work with this morning. And how can I stay in the state of mind that I would love them to emulate? Mm. And then it becomes more of a celebration because now I actually got to start my day with my kids where it used to be. I get up early in the morning, wouldn't see them till seven o'clock at night, right when they're heading for bed or something. And for Paul Jr., I hardly ever interacted with him because I was so busy becoming a man and trying to build a business and make a name for myself that my orientation was as long as I'm putting food on the table and a roof over his head and making sure he's got what he needs and I'm being a good daddy, but he didn't really see it that way. Yes. Yeah, I, I went through many years of that same mindset yeah. Yeah. And, and thankfully thankful for the shift and anyone like we're going to link to everything that Paul has mentioned here on the podcast, particularly his, um, the last four doctors you'll ever need is what she's referring to. Um, so don't stress about like taking notes or whatever, all that stuff will be available. But I, I do want to circle back to a, a seemingly, you know, innocuous question that I asked Paul when he first got here. I said, Hey, how's the last several months been for you? And I kind of knew the answer. And he was going to be like, fucking fine, except. Well, you know, I was saying that, I think it's a great awakening. I think it's uh, a great cleansing. Um, numerologically speaking, if you look at 2020, consciousness has two elements. And mind is, is basically oriented to the number two, the subject and the object. You can't have a mind without a subject and an object, right? So if sure. you're thinking about cooking then you're thinking the subject and the object is cooking. So there's always a duality in mind unless you enter into no mind, which is a non-dual state that takes a lot of practice to get to. <laughs> That's for the next podcast. Most people are doing that when they sleep. So you're practicing it, but you're doing it unconsciously. Um, and that's why meditation is, is also referred to as sleeping awake. So you're actually practicing death while you're alive. You're practicing detachment with awareness. So, um, you know, that's why these practices are there. But when I saw, as I was telling you, as soon as COVID was announced, I immediately said to Angie and Penny, we're about to experience the greatest hoax ever put on humanity. The only thing that would compare to this is World War I and World War II. But you know, because I've spent my life studying health and all aspects of it, from the biochemistry of it, to the anatomy of it, to the physiology of it, to psychology, to physics, to metaphysics and quantum physics, anything that relates to what it means to be human. So I can be the best therapist and coach and teacher I can be. Uh, I've spent my whole career, which is now 36 plus years long, 
studying these things and what I immediately saw in the numerology of 2020 is that two, zero, zero means pure potential. There's the source, there's the uncarved block. It means that we're at a point where the external world, which is a duality, you have to have a subject and an object. Everything you look at, the flowers and the trees, is the object of your awareness. So we are much more typically aware of what's outside of us than inside of us till we grow adequately spiritually. But most of our culture is very undeveloped spiritually. So they're really unconscious of the ramifications of the choices they're making, be they conscious or unconscious. So you have the two of mind and the zero of potential for the external world. And the second 20 is the two of mind and our internal world. And so this is the year that the unconscious manifests itself equally in the mirror of the divine so we can see the ramifications of not being aware of what we're creating with our inner world as it's being mirrored to us in the outer world. Mm. So if you could imagine the inner being of yourself, which you call your conscience or the voice in your head, mm. the part of you that might say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said it that way, or why did I do that again? Sure. Meeting the outer being that you see in the mirror and you project everybody else and having a face-to-face -face confrontation for 365 days. Mm. It's been intense. What you're seeing is the end of a cycle and the birth of a new cycle. So here we are facing the end of our capacity to live as consumerists in the myth of consumerism. So the current myth that we're operating by is as long as I buy something that makes me feel better, I'll be okay. But we've now filled the world with cars, gadgets, buildings, and objects of all types, and we're drawing the resources from the earth at such a vast rate beyond what the earth can sustain to repair itself and regenerate itself. Like a farmer can only farm so much out of a field before the soil's dead. A, he can only mine so much out of the earth before the earth starts to cave in and it disrupts the entire cycle of nature. Uh, you know, the Chinese, for example, warned that mining veins of gold and silver is very dangerous because that's where the dragons live. And when you do that, you upset the dragons and the earth reacts verily violently. Now, you, when, you know, you could say, well, well, dragons, what the fuck's a dragon? Well, what they're saying is that those veins of gold are conductors of cosmic energy and information and that the world is being guided by the other planets in the solar system and the sun and the galaxy itself, which is being guided by the overarching plan of the universe. And because the um, archaic aspect of consciousness, as Gene Gebser would describe it, is based on the mineral elements of our planet, the crystals in the earth are massive conductors of energy information and the earth's loaded with, you know, something like 25% of the earth's composition is crystal. And you have these massive veins of, of uh, copper, silver, gold, and those are all high energy conductors. 
So what the Chinese were saying thousands of years ago is if you disrupt the Earth's internal system of communicating with the sun and the cosmos, it will have dangerous ramifications on the Earth because the Earth's only way to survive as a living organism is to make adjustments, just like an immune system has to make adjustments if you're being invaded by a parasitic organism. So we've pushed the Earth by disrespecting it as a living being and treating it as a material object and dealing with our pain and challenges through consumerism and, uh, you know, the use of medical drugs and the allopathic model is a form of consumerism. I got a problem. I go to a doctor, pay them money, and they make my pain go away. I don't take responsibility for it. I just give my pain to somebody else and give them some money and they give me a pill or cut it out and I don't have to do anything. They, they're going to fix me, which is the assumption that we are machines, not living beings of spirit and soul. So we're in a place right now where we have to step out of our childhood and into our adulthood and realize that the myth that we've been operating on isn't one that emerged through a natural process of awakening, which most myths come by way of shaman, artists, poets, um, storytellers, usually the people that are most tapped in and are the most open-minded perceive the new myths. But our myth was ushered in by corporations that wanted us to think, act, and behave in ways that make them very rich and profitable, which has led to sustaining a dysfunctional military force that's radically expensive sustaining a dysfunctional banking force that's way too expensive for us, a banking system that's way too expensive, sustaining educational systems that are not educating us with what we really need to know or teaching us how to think, but instead teaching us what to think, Mm. which is the support of the dogmas of the major organizations in the world that are trapping us in these old outdated beliefs. Um, We're sustaining very dangerous agricultural systems that are extremely destructive to the planet at every scale. Um, We're sustaining a patriarchal culture that's very uh, catastrophic to the natural harmony and balance between males and females on the planet. We're sustaining religious dogmas that are dangerously, dangerously misinterpreted. Mm. um, And, you know, I like to quote Shankara, the famous Hindu philosopher sage, who said in his book, The Crest Jewel of Discrimination, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he was saying, no man can understand scripture until he's enlightened. And when he's enlightened, he doesn't need scripture. Mm. So I say to people, what percentage of the people teaching your kids in Sunday school or in any church or temple or synagogue around the world are enlightened? Well, even the most dogmatic religious person usually says to me, I've never seen a number come at me more than 2% of them. I said, well, that means most people are being dangerously railroaded into beliefs that alter the way they perceive the world themselves and others and leads to a lot of pain. And there's a lot of religious dogma behind the way we're treating the earth and the way men treat women, unfortunately, especially in Christianity. And those things cannot be sustained any longer. So when you start looking at the way we we relate to the planet, the way we relate to each other, the way we use advanced technology without morality tied to it, we've got to look at the way we do science because science is 
is uh, divorced its responsibilities of being moral. Mm-hmm. Um, because right now the environment is, is so close to um, serious, serious collapse that we really have to carefully analyze all the issues of the world. We have to really analyze are the lines that we've written on a piece of paper called a map worth trillions of dollars a year to defend when really we all need the same things to be on the planet and experience life, love, and dreams and goals and growth together. And we have enough resources for everybody. But here you get someone like Donald Trump wanting to segregate the United States, keep the Mexicans out, build walls, capturing people at the border, putting children and families in cages, segregating kids from their cages. This is the kind of behavior of a dark ages king with a bad attitude. And you have religion as the number one source of war worldwide. We have racism reemerging and all that. And that's all, these are all distractions from what's really going on. And what's really going on is our planet is very close to um, breaking down to the point that it won't sustain life as we know it. Well, and then you, then you mix in this COVID-19. Which is another great distraction produced by the very people that are driving the consumerist mindset or myth because it's being done to implement strategies of global vaccination. It's being done to implement strategies of global control, which means just as the outdated mythologies of religion have put us all in the place of being the child of an old man in the sky with a bad attitude, and that religious programming taught us to worship authority and never question it, Mm -hmm. we are now still trapped in worshiping anybody that calls themselves a scientist, a preacher, a teacher, or wearing a white jacket like a doctor, um, or has a master's or a PhD, and not questioning what they're saying without realizing the grand majority of these people work for large corporations that really have no moral interest, but only a financial interest and have little concern for what it takes to keep the earth healthy. And often think of the earth as just a bunch of rocks and dirts with no consciousness or life of its own. Mm. And also have this Christian underpinning of we're all fallen sinners and that the earth is just a place where we go to toil in the thorns until we repent and take Jesus as our savior. And then we'll get to live happily ever after in heaven. So who gives a shit about the earth? We're getting out of here anyhow. Mm -hmm. So people treat the earth like a rental car that they can just beat the shit out of and return and pretend it was somebody else's fault that it got all banged up and play that kind of game. So COVID really gave us exposure to how badly our constitutional rights are being taken from us, how bad our freedom of speech is being manipulated, how much diversity is being taken away from our capacity to share our thoughts, feelings, and emotions publicly. Huge. uh, To how dangerous people with lots of money like Bill Gates are that are now showing you that if you have enough money, then you can become the king of the medical system, the justice system, and the media systems all at once without any qualifications and even a bad track record. And look at, we voted a criminal as president. Donald Trump's history is not pretty. 
And so when you start seeing who we are believing and worshiping, you can see that we're going through an initiation process where we must become adults and stop using words like I have to and replace them with I choose to and accept responsibility for the fact that when our government or any government is raping and pillaging other countries in the name of false flags, pretending that there's real threats like Saddam Hussein, etc., when really we're there just to steal their resources, which you know is a long, long story of the history of war, mm. and the military-industrial complex is one of the richest industries in the world, and interestingly, the Vatican's the richest corporation in the world, so it turns out that organized corporate religion is actually the most profitable way to brainwash people and get them to give up their money and their belongings and their souls. Um, so when you start looking at what the agenda is, the agenda actually looks like this. He who has the gold rules. And we can use your phones and we can use your televisions and your radios and your magazines and your newspapers to craft a coherent message that repeats the same falsities long enough that you actually begin to believe they're true. And we can lock you in your airports and lock you in your homes and we can force you to follow the guidelines that we at Facebook, Google, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a couple others deem that you must follow because we have been able to pay off judges and the most important health officials in the world and anybody else we want to buy so that we can actually create our own laws and our own ways of doing business and turn every one of you into little chickens in a cage that are profitable and ultimately, we can even determine when we slaughter you and get rid of you. And there's many, many more Ugh. interesting facets to it. So we have, in my opinion, as a collective, called this into existence mm. so that we can become aware of what we've been unconscious of by acting like children who just trust that the people with the white coats and the PhDs and the big money or always looking out for our best interests. So what's, so what's the, again, you know, we, we never try to be doom and gloom. So what's the way out of this, Paul? Like what, um, how do you see this playing out? What, what can you share with everyone that's like, look, this is what's happening. Like objectively, this is what's happening, but this is, you know, and we talked about Mickey Willis's, um, pandemic indoctrination, mm -hmm. And the work that he's doing, there there are ways to move forward through this. This is the great awakening, as you said. Well, the first thing to do is look at how you behaved when you were locked in your house and in your yard and spent having to spend time with the people you say you love. And what did we see? Massive social unrest, massive domestic violence, and rapid escalation in the rates of suicide, and people having a very, very hard time with the very people that they're supposed to be having a healthy, loving relationship with. So what does that mean? We got a little taste of solitary confinement where we had time to meet our dragons mm. within ourselves. We had time to see how fragile our lives are and how much we've relinquished our responsibilities for caring for the planet, feeding ourselves and providing the things that are necessary to keep anybody safe and any family safe, be it power, shelter, safety, warmth, income. And we've 
um, allotted those responsibilities to corporations and other people. And we've realized that if we don't have some food growing in the backyard and access to water, and we don't have a savings account, and we don't do mature adult things that are necessary for survival in any environment, and if we don't take care of the planet, then nothing else matters. So the first step is awakening of the self and seeing that you now had a chance to be segregated enough to really spend some time with yourself and find out what values you have been living by consciously or unconsciously and are they actually going to work in an environment of total control and being surveyed and monitored and told what you can and cannot say, which is a kind of a sick cross between communism and fascism and industrialism or capitalism. And it just go a little bit deeper on that because that is something that's become a huge for me that the civil liberties are being squashed at, at a, you know, what we'd see in the East with China and what mm-hmm. they've done. And we used to laugh at them like, holy shit, how do people live there? How could, yeah. it's happening here by the corporations, yes. not the government. Though we don't have a government. We have corporate headquarters. Goodbye government. We haven't had a government for a long time. Mm. And anybody that tried to protect us from that, like JFK, quickly disappears, or Abraham Lincoln, uh, or Martin Luther King trying to create equality for people. Uh, you know, we, we've had a dark force, uh, which is our own shadow, for a long time. Mm. And most people have sort of ignored it because as long as they can, you know, drink their alcohol and watch their movies and get laid and have a fancy car, who gives a fuck about what's really going on? It's Mm -hmm. beyond me. But what we've all got to do is we've got to realize that what we all need collectively, worldwide, regardless of race, color, or creed, are the same things. We have to have healthy soils to grow healthy food, to have healthy minds and bodies. We have to have clean water. We have to have clean air. And we have to have the ability to communicate with each other without fighting and doing destructive things. We have to grow up and learn how to express our wants, feelings, and needs and be willing to hear a specific request from the other and then be honest about what we can do to create compromise from both sides. So we really come into the situation where the same things we have to do to have a healthy relationship with ourselves or a healthy relationship with our spouse or our children, we have to begin being brave enough to do with people of other religious viewpoints, other political viewpoints, and um, other cultural viewpoints. And we have to hold in mind what do we all have to have to keep... If you think of the world as a playground where we get to come and experience our dreams as souls and create what we want. Well, to have a playground, you got to have a place that you can call a playground and you got to have the equipment that goes in a playground and you got to have some water there and you got to have a place to poop and pee there. Mm. Well, we have to have a healthy enough earth, healthy enough water, a healthy enough atmosphere and environment that we're not having to play stupid games like Bill Gates putting aluminum all in the skies to try to cool the planet instead of addressing the real issue or, or biotech corporations producing billions of uh, robot bees 
instead of saying, what are we doing that's killing all the bees? Uh, you know, an example is etymologists identified recently that the, uh, there was an article uh, and the title of the article is Armageddon may be near. And I can't remember the rest of the title. I have the article. I can share it with you if you uh, email me when I'm at home. But an entomologist doing research noticed bug traffic was dropping way down, which concerned him deeply because bugs are the sex organs of this planet. And so he contacted entomologists all over the world and began to do correlated, coordinated studies for bug traffic. And they concluded that in the last 50 years, insect traffic worldwide has reduced 75%. And I sent that article to my father, who's got a degree in agriculture and is a very skilled farmer. And he said, we're up Shit's Creek without a paddle. And he said to me, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid on the farm, but the mosquitoes would practically pick you up and carry you away. He said, I hardly ever see mosquitoes any, anywhere anymore. And the research shows clearly it's from herbicides, pesticides, rodenticides, and fungicides farming chemicals that we're using, Roundup and things like that. We're destroying the entire fabric of mother nature's capacity to pollinate. Rudolf Steiner said in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there's only two things human life depends on, bees and trees. And when either of them reach a critical level, life as you know it will cease to exist. And we're right there. The bees are almost gone and the trees were killing something like 2 million hectares of trees a day in the rainforest for corporate interests right? Not even things that we need. So we've also got such a materialist view of the world. We just see it as rocks, dirt, and matter, but we don't realize these are living integrated systems that communicate with each other, which is why James Lovelock's Gaia philosophy is so important because he was a very skilled scientist that showed that the planet is conscious and it really does interact with itself and regulate its temperature and has an immune system, so to speak. And Steiner talked about the uh, the you know for example he talked about the oceans and the rivers as the circulatory system the trees and the plant life as lungs he talked about the soil this top soil is what he called the superficial digestion and then deeper in the soil is deep digestion so he actually showed how the earth actually has organs just like we do mm -hmm. and functions and, and how we have to be conscious of what those organs do because our life depends upon them. So when it comes to what we can do, we can all get clear on what are the values that we need, not only for ourselves, but our, our unified values, such as the need to protect natural resources. We need to wake up to the fact that we're killing more species in nature than ever in the history of man. There's a great book called The Future of Life by Edward O. Wilson, a famous naturalist who's received over 100 awards in science, showing we're doing very bad things to the environment and it's coming at a very great cost. And if you study Steiner's work or the work of Zach Bush, MD, mm. or Thomas Cowan mm. and others... They all show that when, and Steiner was really probably the first one to describe this, that whenever an organism begins to die, it releases viruses into the environment that are actually information packets that attach to the other person's body and inform their cells of what the force of death is, whether it be toxicity or starvation. 
And those viruses are actually there to upregulate the genes of the living creatures in the environment so that they know how to make the alterations necessary to survive and create the alchemical transformation necessary to rehabilitate the environment so that everything doesn't die. First of all, viruses are dead. They're not living things. As Bruce Lipton says, a virus is like a flash drive that you plug into your computer and download information, but the virus is not going to infect the computer unless the information on the virus is incoherent with the software in the computer, which then it would be called a virus. So we're having a viral epidemic, which is tracked right back to the fact that it originated in one of the dirtiest places on the planet, Wuhan, China. And we are having an environmental collapse worldwide, and we have the highest number of obese and sick people worldwide. So viruses and exosomes are the information being released by the traumas to the world, be they by toxicity or abuse or neglect, that are now making it into the news as a threat. But the only people that are actually at threat are the same people that are at threat of any virus, because the same thing happens if you take, if you take, let's say, the current version of Microsoft anything and try to put it into an IBM 386 mm. computer, it'll crap collapse it. Yep. It will crash the system. It does not have the uh, hardware to handle or the software to handle that much information. So when we get a viral input from the environment that says you must upregulate the following genes immediately, which means you need these enzymes and these foods to support your nutrition and your detoxification pathways, and you're going to have to upregulate respiration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you are already so low on energy and vitality that to make that transition actually is too stressful for the system to maintain. You get sick. And oftentimes the illness is part of the upregulation because it is now activating detoxification pathways mm. and immune pathways that are killing everything off that's in the way of you becoming upregulated to be able to sustain yourself in the environment and be healthy enough to make the changes that you're supposed to be making as part of the environment. So what we're actually trying to do is kill the messenger. And it's also a bit of an interesting paradox that Bill Gates got a patent on the coronavirus number 15, which was being developed for biological warfare and other research reasons. And three months after he got the patent, he announced in public that there would be a viral epidemic coming our way. It's almost like I asked you to talk about this because you do know who my next guest is? Uh, Mickey Willis. No, Dr. Thomas Cowan. Perfect. And so he is going to, you're going what you just said, I'm going to hand off to him yeah. because that's a whole nother podcast right there. Yes. His new book is very good and it goes into it quite the, well. The Contagion Myth? Yes. 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 I've, I've already got read. The, I've, I've already got read it on the way, but. Yeah, I've read a bunch of it and I've studied his work over the years and him and I have shared uh, patients over the years. So, and, and him and I also have a deep uh, underpinning in Steiner's teachings and right. uh, Weston A. Price's teaching. So uh, my approach is quite parallel to his. Yes. And so that was just an amazing segue, finishing point. Is there anything else you'd like to share before I get you off into this? Yeah, way? I would just say that this is not something to be afraid of. This is something to be excited about. This is the chance for us to really say, what do we want for our future and for our children and for each other and for nature? We now really have to stop this illusion that 
everything's just matter and animals are just things that are stupid that live in the nature and, and we don't need them. We've really got to embrace the whole of nature because that's the great chain of being that supports us. And our security is linked to the diversity of nature and the diversity of farming. And our psychological security is linked to the diversity that only comes through freedom of speech. Mm. Because if we keep repressing everybody, then we don't actually know what sort of ideas or mind viruses are in the environment. Therefore, we don't know how to react to them until it's way too late. So if you think, if, if you took your children to a new school and they only had one subject, mm. would you be excited about that? Or would you say, wait a minute, I really like my children to get a more enhanced general education so they know how the world works. I want them to study social studies. I want them to know a little bit about agriculture, about science, about mathematics, about English, about other languages, about poetry. I don't want them just to have a left brain orientation. I want them to have some physical exercise, some home economics, because when you're young, you have to know about enough about the world to navigate the world. But what's happening now, anybody with an opinion that goes against Google, Facebook, or Bill Gates, or any of the few multi-billionaires in the world they're using artificial intelligence to scour this information 24-7 and knock out anything. So what's ultimately happening is the schoolyard of the world is becoming one in which there's less and less classes and more and more a system of indoctrinating you into a belief system that is financially profitable to a very few. But now we're becoming viscerally aware of that. It was salient before. Now it's obvious so now is our chance to say, what does it really mean to be a citizen of the world? And what is it that I really need to at least sign a petition against? Is it, should we really be giving the domain of our bodies away to people like Bill Gates that are not even qualified as a scientist or as a doctor or anything to do? And as people have been quoted as saying very intelligently, if he couldn't protect his computers against viruses, what makes you think we should trust him to protect us against them? <laughs> that is a perfect finish right there. Have you read Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray? No. Kyle recommended it to me. You, you'll love it. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's along the lines of how our speech is being squashed. Yes. Significantly. We're in a myth transition and myth transitions are historically well known to be challenging times. So the counter myth, the myth is do what you're told. You don't know how to manage yourself. You don't know how to manage your money. You don't even know how to take care of your body. So we're going to do that for you. Um, and you just shut up and be good. No, oh, by the way, we'll give you a few pennies to eat and we're going to put you in invisible jail, but boy, don't worry about it because you'll have rapidly downloaded movies mm. and pornography and everything to keep you distracted while we suck the life out of you. So that's the old myth. And so now we have to go back to the roots of more ancient, but more well put together cultures that realized they had to live in harmony with nature and with other people. And so the beauty of COVID is we're right now given the awareness and the opportunity to say, what do we really need together to be able to have the dream playground to all live and love as much as we can without disrupting our neighbors and share 
and realize we all need each other and that racial, cultural, religious, and ethnic differences are outdated. And ultimately the only religion is life. And how can we share in and celebrate life together? And what do we have to be wise enough not to spend money on because we don't have a political system anymore? The only way you can vote is with your wallet. So whatever you buy, you're voting for. So if you're buying commercially raised poison food, you're voting for the destruction of the environment. If you're uh, using instant gratification and uh, spending money on things that are shipped all over the world when you could go buy them locally, then you're destroying the environment. So we really have to actually start communicating with each other, making sure that the information that's getting taken off the internet is getting put back on as many times as it takes so that we're building other places like Brian Rose had to do with London Real. That's right. And we've got to support each other in recognizing that without our freedom of speech and our constitutional rights to our bodies and our own homes, uh, we don't have anything. We are now slaves in an invisible uh, jail with uh, electronic waves as wires, mm-hmm. as, as the uh, electric fence. And, um, and we lose touch with what's meaningful in life. And uh, most people, Steiner's warned that human beings will continue to invent advanced technologies outside of themselves until they either destroy the world or realize everything they're inventing is a copy of a more advanced technology within themselves. Mm. The question is, which will come first? The awakening or the destruction of the planet? So we really need now to tap into the advanced technology that the universe has invested in all of us. And the way you do that is you be honest about what, what allows me to maintain a sense of connection and love to myself, to my family, and to others. And those are the values, because when we realize what it takes for us to live, we, we need to fall back in love with nature and the planet. And we got to get rid of lines on paper and say, let's take all the money we're putting into the military and invest a lot of that into rehabilitating the world and using the military for creation instead of destruction and create education systems that equip people with the knowledge to become part of the healing instead of progressive destruction in the name of profit. And it's a great time for an honest soul searching of what are the ways of living and believing that have not nurtured me up to this point that I now realize through COVID, I've got to develop a deeper, more honest, loving relationship with myself so I can um, become a healthy part of a democracy. Mm. Welcome to the great awakening. Uh Hopefully not destruction of 2020 through the heart, mind of, my friend, my brother, Paul Check. Oh, Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to share with you. And thank you for the lovely uh, smoke and music and uh, beautiful environment you got here. Thanks, brother. I can't wait to do it again. Oh. Oh. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, please check out the show notes or head on over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events and retreats. If you liked what you heard today, click subscribe and share this with friends that might enjoy our platform. Please leave a five-star rating in iTunes as this really helps us spread our message. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BunkerCal and on Facebook as John Callahan. 
Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon.